Well, several years ago, we, we went through a process as a church of collecting funds and having drawings done up. And ultimately, we wound up with our, this portion of our building. We built this building. We, we built the, the parking lot out front, and we brought in new water lines and sprinkler lines and power lines and whatnot. And the building's been quite useful for uh, ministry. But slowly, what happens, no matter whether it's a church building or a house or a factory, pretty much from the day that a building is completed, there are attacks waged upon it by nature itself to try to pull that building apart. So grounds shift. Sometimes we experience various places in the world earthquakes. In our area, we, we've had a few tornadoes or pretty strong wind storms that have hit, water damage, uh, the forces of wind, insects, the sun beating down on a structure, mold, fire. There's all sorts of natural forces that are being exerted against a structure to seek to destroy it. And even though buildings may last for 100 years or 500 years, or if you go to Europe, you'll even see ancient cathedrals that are a thousand years old. They constantly need to be maintained. They constantly need to be repaired. Many of them need to be rebuilt. And eventually they will all succumb to nature. That's the way of the world. Well, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, in the word of God is also called a building. We're also called a building. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we're told a spiritual house. And just as the forces of nature are constantly pummeling physical buildings, so the forces of our fallen nature, the forces of the spiritual realm within which we live, are constantly working to pull the church of Jesus Christ apart and to destroy her. Think about all of the things that potentially can fragment and destroy a local church. Things come to mind like doctrinal disputes. And, and there, right there, you have hundreds of potential differences of opinion and beliefs on core doctrine and secondary doctrine that can pull churches apart. Moral disputes. The, the big one raging in society right now is human sexuality. There's many disputes about human sexuality. Associational disputes can pull a church apart. If churches are part of denominations or associations or fellowships and there's fragmentation or division within those groups of churches, that can pull Christians and churches apart. Different views on the church's role in the political realm or relational disputes between Christians or Christian leaders. Philosophical pursuits, different perspectives on how churches should operate, where they should prioritize their time. Ecclesiastical pursuits pummel and batter the church day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year. In fact, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that we're all here together because there are so many forces seeking to pull us apart and fragment us as a church and then also as individuals. And while we know, based upon the word of God, that the capital C church, the, big, the church of Jesus Christ, will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Local churches can crumble and fall. Individual Christians can fall away or be weakened if, if they are not careful. So just as there are forces in nature working against 
physical buildings, so there are forces in the spiritual realm working against the spiritual house of God. Well, we need to then consider, what do we do about that? And how should we respond? What is it that can maintain us in ministry, collectively, and in faith, individually? Well, there are many things that we could teach from the Word of God to answer this question, but the two that come from our text this morning are the following. A high view of the church and a high view of Christ's sovereignty. A high view of the church and a high view of Christ's sovereignty arise from the text we're going to explore, Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. Let's start with a high view of the church. So here we have our friend, the Apostle Paul. He's continuing his travels. He's out on the water. He's on the land. He's ministering to unbelievers. He's visiting groups of Christians. And the Bible says, and when he had parted from them and set sail, so he's out in the water, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, who makes a concerted effort to be with God's people, he stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Just keep that in mind because there's going to be another episode later in the text that is very similar to that, where he's being warned, don't go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. When we went on, then we went on board the ship and they returned home. So most of this is about Paul's location, various locations, the geographical references are pretty numerous in this particular passage, outlining the various places he went to. So how is it that this text serves as yet another illustration of the early Christian high view of the church? Well, the first thing, there's several I want to extract from the text. The first is, in this text, it's clear that early Christians wanted to be together. They wanted to be together. You might say, well, where do we find that? Well, look at the text that says, When we had parted from them, did you see that? Now, whenever you're you're translating from one language into another language, you'll know that nuance is often lost. So the New Testament we know was written in common Greek. We're reading it in English. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew, and we read it in English. And when you're translating from Hebrew to English or Greek to English, the translators, well-meaning as they are, and they do a great job 99.9% of the time, sometimes it's difficult to, to really find the right word or communicate the force of a verb or a noun in 
the language of your, your readers. For example, some of you I know speak a different language. And I'm sure you could think of words, for instance, if your mother tongue is not English, you could think of words for which there's no true English equivalents. So my wife, for example, learned Low German before she learned English. And there's a particular word in Low German that she claims is, and I kind of agree, because I like the sound of it, that's far superior to, to the English equivalent, and it's the word Gnurpel. The word Gnurpel refers to the cartilage between the bones. Now, if you're holding on to, you don't need to be a speaker of Low German, but if you're holding on to a piece of cartilage in one hand and the other, it's kind of squishy and soft and kind of weird. Doesn't gnurple just sound a lot better than cartilage? It sounds too scientific. So there, there are certain words in certain languages that just sound better and work better. And so when we're translating, we don't need to lack confidence in the English translations of God's word, but sometimes we need to flesh out, pardon the pun, the meaning a little bit more. So when it says, when we had parted from them, literally it carries the sense or the force when we were torn apart from them. When we were torn apart from them. Now that's much more of an emotional expression, isn't it? So as these early Christians had fellowship together, when they no longer had the same assignment, when they were going in different directions, they felt like they'd been torn apart. That's how intimate and precious their relations were, relationships were with one another. And it speaks, brothers and sisters, to the true nature of Christian relationships. When we are apart from one another, there should be a sense that the world is not right. <laughs> this is not really the way I, I want it to be. I want to be with God's people. I, I thirst to be with the Christian church. I, I want to be doing ministry with other believers. But the fact of the matter is, is just as wind and hail and mold and rain and tornadoes wreak havoc on physical structures. So there are a multiplicity of things that seek to diminish the living church of the Lord Jesus Christ that threatens unity, that threatens fellowship. For example, let's say you're a church that's conflict avoidant and you think to yourself, okay, the best way to avoid disunity is to take a stand on nothing. We're going to be a mile wide, as they say, and an inch deep. We're going to be big, a, a big tent evangelical. Well, some people are going to say, you don't take a stand on anything. We're leaving. On the other hand, if you say, well, we're going to take a stand on, on everything. People are like, you're too opinionated. This. So whether, whether you are a mile wide and an inch deep or an inch wide and a mile deep, it's going to cause necessarily some form of division. Jesus prayed for unity in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Do you remember that? He prayed that the church would be united, that, that we would be one as father and son and spirit are one. But numerous issues seek to divide the church. Perhaps some of the most common factors in the modern church, and I've already alluded to some earlier, include... For example, our view of what it means to be a Christian in relationship to other Christians. So since the rise of biblical Christianity post-Reformation, 
And then coming through various revivals and even through the 1900s when there was a big emphasis on people recovering a personal relationship with Christ, having a personal relationship with Christ. How many of us grew up in churches where we probably heard personal relationship with Jesus Christ a million times? You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to give your heart to Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. You need to follow Jesus. You need to have personal devotionals, personal prayer. And and that's not, not bad theology per se, but if that's taught to the exclusion of this, it leads to imbalance. And we start to think of our faith as an individualistic relationship. It's me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus on an island. And the church is auxiliary. It's secondary. We don't think of our faith collectively. We think of our relationship with Jesus Christ as personal. And what this leads to is autonomous Christians. They value Christ. They love the word, but they don't really truly value the Christian church. And so they come and they go. They may not serve. They may just spectate. It's not really that important. It may be interesting to go to. It may provide some services. It may stimulate my thinking. But really, it's about me and Jesus. Well, how do you have unity in that kind of a construct? And then theological disputes. Again, man, theological disputes. There are issues after issues after issues after issues, major issues, minor issues, everything in between. You could literally disagree with someone on hundreds of different major or minor theological points. And the question is like, where do we draw the line? Authority disputes, differences of opinion on authority in the church. What authority do elders actually have over the church? Authority in the home. Like to to what degree does a husband actually have authority over his wife? Authority the authority of parents over their children, which is increasingly being challenged by the broader culture. Lines of discipline towards children, matters of cultural engagement, like to what, where are we allowed to speak in? What issues are we allowed to speak into? Where should we remain silent? Lots of different opinions, lots of different opinions on, on that in the modern church. Financial disputes, where we should allocate our funds, and we could go on and on and on and on. Again, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that we're all in this room together today because there are so many reasons to be divided. So many reasons to be divided. In fact, I, I, I don't think I have ever seen the church of Jesus Christ more divided in my lifetime than it is now. And there, and there are increasingly issues being foisted upon us that potentially can divide us. Now, ultimately, we are united in Christ. Ultimately, we're we're united in Christ. But one of the things we, we often need to come back to is that really unites us is love. I was reading 1 Corinthians 13 this week, and and I've read this many times. I've preached it, but I, I was convicted by it. Like, I have deficits in my life when it comes to really living out 1 Corinthians 13. So if you know, in the book of Acts, we've spent a little bit of time talking about sign gifts, tongues, people have different views in the church about what tongues are, prophecy, people have different views. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 about these weighty theological issues in relationship to the call to love. He says, 
If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So spiritual words can be coming out of your mouth. They can be true. But if you have not love, it's just, it's just noise to God. And if I have prophetic powers, who wouldn't want some of those? And understand all mysteries, who wouldn't want that? And all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, you're so committed to your faith, you're martyred for it. You're burned at the stake. But if you have not love, you have nothing. See the priority God places on love? And then what he does is he articulates for us the nature of love, what love is and what love isn't. And rather than just hearing this, this would be a good time for us to all evaluate. Think about our relationships, maybe relationships that are strained, relationships that have ended, relationships that are awkward, relationships that are frustrating, relationships that are irritating, relationships that make you angry. And listen to what the word of God says to us. It's so convicting. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So am I alone in the convicting power of this verse? Can we not all agree that this is hard stuff? And it can be somewhat embarrassing to evaluate our lives in light of it. It's like, really? Why, why am I not more mature in these areas? But it's a blessed thing to pursue them and to ask God to enable us to pursue them. So this is not a call to abandon truth or to minimize gifts, but to prioritize love as Christ did for us. Secondly, they put themselves at risk to see one another. This may not be evident in the text at first read, but when you understand a little bit about Jewish culture, I think it is. So, so Paul is out on open water. How many of you have been on a cruise boat or a nice stable speedboat? You've been out in the lake. You feel pretty safe. Well, we might live in a boating culture, but Paul did not live in a boating culture. The Jews, for the most part, were afraid of the sea. I think, well, I don't know. I remember Jesus being out on the boat, yeah, on an inland lake for fishing. But the Jews were afraid of the sea for the most part, even in the prophets, when it spoke of the sea, it's a place of chaos, sometimes even described as a place of evil. So they weren't a seafaring people. And when you were out on the Mediterranean Sea, going from one island to the next, you can imagine that these are pretty old school boats. These are archaic by our standards. And many, many ships were sunk in storms. Paul himself was shipwrecked on occasion. But Paul is willing to literally put his life on the time to be with God's people. He's willing to 
contravene the conventions of his culture to be with God's people. He's willing to go out on the sea to to visit God's people in various islands to encourage them. He put his neck on the line, literally, for God's people. He loved the church that much. Third, they were together as families. There's a notation in the text that when he was parting, when they were parting, to be more precise, the whole family came. It wasn't just the guys. The wives came, the kids came, the church was a community. They wanted to be together. They all mourned the departure of God's servants. And then finally, they prayed together. They're out on the beach, about ready to get on the boats. And it says specifically in the text, they were praying together. How does the Lord's prayer start? Two words, our father. Notice the collective sense there, our Father, not my father, our father, not my God, not our God, our father. The Lord's prayer starts with a reference that denotes God's authority, father, but also relationality. It's a family word, our father. So while prayer is many things, while prayer is many things, it is by definition a communal declaration that we have a common father. Do we not? It's a communal declaration that we have a common father. He's our father, our father, and therefore we are what? Brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. So in the Our Father prayer, we are speaking to God, but we're also reminding one another of our relationships. That's why we pray together. Can we pray individually? Of course. But we pray together because it's a reminder of our communal relationships, that we are all sons and daughters of the same father on a spiritual level. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Remember Philip? He started off his ministry career, if you want to call it that, as one of the six servants. Some would say deacons. We don't know. It's not used in, that word's not used in Acts, that Acts context. But Philip was one of the six men initially appointed to distribute food to the widows. He goes on to become an evangelist. At some point, he must have got married. Now he's got four girls. It says he was one of the the seven, stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now this, by the way, is more proof that while not all offices in the church are open to men and women, all the gifts that are given by God to the church are not limited by one's gender. So both men and women were told in the word of God had gifts of prophecy. I emphasize this because there's a little bit of a movement. I don't know how big it is, but there's a little bit of a movement I've witnessed in the Christian church today would suggest Women can't teach doctrine. They can't teach anything to anybody. 
They just need to focus on teaching domestic, on domestic issues. Well, I don't, I don't agree with that. Now, it's important for us to understand what prophecy is. Prophecy, fundamentally, the most base definitions of prophecy, which I think everyone can agree with, is that prophecy is the verbalization of God's truth for the building up of God's church. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So I suppose you're not much of a prophet if you're not building up the church, encouraging it and consoling her. Now, most assuredly, the fact that so many of these daughters were gifted in this way probably says a lot about their father's influence over them. And I don't know how that all works, but I do believe that God in his sovereignty uses parents, pastors, and churches, and other influencers to bring our spiritual giftedness to fruition. And this father had clearly shaped four very godly and useful women of God. By the way, you might be interested in knowing that Outside of the Bible and other historical documents, church history tells us that Philip and his four daughters eventually moved into Asia. And at least two of them, maybe all four of them, we don't know. It just uses it in the plural of his daughters lived to very old ages. And they were sometimes consulted by a newer generation of Christians asking questions like, what was life like in the early church? So these women became useful to God and beneficial to the church, presumably for, for many uh, decades. So these, these individuals are, are visited and they serve to bear witness for, for, met, for a few generations later, at least, to what life was like in the early years of Christianity. So we have here a passage that reminds us of the beauty of the church and then secondly, a high view of Christ's sovereignty, as I already mentioned, a high view of Christ's sovereignty. So you'll recall that earlier on, there was this quick little warning, don't go to Jerusalem. So now that becomes the subject of uh, our focus. Verse 10, while they were staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, i.e. Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So Paul has now been warned twice. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's making all these stops along the way. That if he goes there, there's going to be big trouble that awaits him. Now, the way the prophet delivers this message is admittedly a little odd. <laughs> But prophets are known for their drama. So for example, we think of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel was prophesying to Judah that the Babylonians were, were on the way, he would often participate in these crazy sermon illustrations. One time he ate a scroll to illustrate how wonderful God's word is. Another time he collected up cattle dung. He was originally going to use human dung to cook his food over it to show what life would be like in exile. Another time, this is in the word of God, I'm not making this up. He took his underwear and he hid them down in some rocks by the river and then later retrieved them as a sermon illustration. How would you like me to bring a pair of old undies to church today? <laughs> Think, don't be crass, pastor. Well, it's in the word of God. 
So prophets often resort to some pretty wild sermon illustrations, if you want to call them that. And here we have Agabus who takes Paul's belt and ties himself up with it to illustrate Paul's destiny. Now, Agabus was right. His prophecy was accurate. He wasn't a false prophet. But it is noteworthy to mention that not all prophecies about persecution or problems or difficulties necessarily mean we should run from them. This is where wisdom is is needed because, for instance, in Paul's life, we know he was bailed out from imminent arrest in Damascus. He was lowered in a basket over a wall. Remember that? Then he goes down to Jerusalem and they put him in a boat and they get him out of, out of town. We know Jesus, when he was being sought out by the, by the uh, Pharisees, sometimes would slip away in the crowds. So there, there's times when Christ, our Lord, Paul, hear about persecution and they run the other way. But ultimately, Christ put himself in the crosshairs of his adversaries and went to the cross. And here, Paul is not going to use these prophecies to try to escape persecution, but he's going to lean into them. Paul answered, it says in verse 13, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? So again, that shows the the love, the concern, the care. Literally, these people are crying because they're hearing these horrendous stories of what's going to happen to Paul. And he comforts them and he says, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty incredible thing to be able to say. I mean, you can read it in the word of God and think, well, that was 2,000 years ago. It's just words on the page, but like enter into the moment. Would you say that? Someone delivers a message. Hey, by the way, if you, if you open your mouth at school today or the, on Monday and, and share your faith, you're going to be put to death. Would you go to school and open your mouth? It's an, it's an incredible statement that he makes. Now, but let's, listen to the reason why he's able to make that statement. This is really important. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That's sovereignty right there. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. That's sovereignty. There's multiple references in the scripture to the sovereignty of God. It's not a let go and let God kind of thing. It's a lean in and let God kind of thing. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went up with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So answer this next question carefully. And we are in church, so we need to be honest. We don't need to be quick with our words or rash with our vows. I think Ecclesiastes says something about that. I think it's in Ecclesiastes 5. But just think about this question. Are you ready to be imprisoned or to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, think about that one. I think I am, but am I? Am I willing to be imprisoned or to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus? Well, in and of ourselves, no, we're not. We're not capable of that. There have been many religious zealots who've died for false faiths. 
people that have died for lies, for falsehood. Remember what happened to Waco, Texas? There's many people that have died for foolishness, for lies. But to truly be willing to lay your life down for Christ is predicated upon an absolute belief in the sovereignty of God over your life. If you don't have that, you will fail. The belief, like, I am not my own, I'm bought with a price. I am not an owner of this body and life. I'm a steward. I'm a servant of Christ. It's not my ministry, it's his ministry. It's not my church, it's his church. It's not my wife, it's his wife. It's not my kids, it's his kids. We, as soon as we do this, hold fast, clench, hold on to our material lives, we're actually playing the role of God who alone owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So we must be able to say, let the will of the Lord be done. In other words, the higher your view of God's sovereignty, the more you're able to endure without giving up. We talked about wind, sleet, hail, mold. One of the things that attack so many Christians so often throughout the generations is why is God allowing me to suffer? Why is God allowing me to suffer? You've, you've, I'm sure as a Christian, you've been asked that question. Well, if, you're, if your God is true, why does he allow people to suffer? Well, there's many reasons in the word of God why God allows suffering. But if you think deeply about the question, it's not a very good question because it, it's, it makes an assumption. It makes an assumption that you deserve fill in the blank, life, liberty, happiness, whatever it might be. That's an assumption. The fact that you are alive and here is an incredible gift from God in and of itself. How many babies don't even make it out of the womb? How many people in the world don't make it to the age of 30? How many people throughout history have died in wars and famines and plagues? We're here. That's a gift in and of itself. And we're not owed a minute, a second, an hour. We're not owed one dollar from God. Now, God in his benevolence and grace pours out his blessings more than we often recognize. The Bible says, what right does the pot have to say to the potter? Why did you make me this way? In other words, it's a bad question. It's a bad question. Like, well, I want the answer. Like, how do we answer? Sovereignty. But why does God allow us to suffer? Sovereignty. Why has God blessed me and not another? Sovereignty. Why has God blessed him and not me? Sovereignty. Can I get a better answer? No, you got to wait for that one. But in the meanwhile, if you simply drive this theological stake deep into the ground in your life, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign. Let his will be done, not mine. You will be able to endure all sorts of stuff in life because you, your life is tethered to the rock that does not move. You are literally founded and grounded upon the rock that does not move. So with this in mind, brothers and sisters, very simple as we leave here today, simple to say, hard to practice. Let's recommit ourselves to a love for the Christian church and one another. 
and let's trust in the sovereignty of God. And when we do, the amazing thing is, you know what we get as a result? We also get peace, anxiety is reduced, stress is reduced, fear is reduced, courage is increased. There's blessings in the here and now to loving one another and to trusting in the sovereignty of God. May these words bring you much joy and peace and God much glory as you put them into practice, even this week. 